Well, we got some celebrating to do, everybody. <laughs> because um, I had the joy of being in our uh, brand new St. John's campus last Sunday, but I bet you there's a whole gang of people in Mount Pleasant and in Alma who are thinking, how did it go? How did the launch of a brand new campus go? And, and I'm not even joking you, uh, God is just so good. And just my hopes and expectations and prayers, just absolutely blown away, just absolutely blown away. And to tell you that um, that building literally had no more room in it for human beings. It was just jam-packed, praise God. Um, I, I, my understanding is there were maybe somewhere to 14 to 15 individuals who actually came and left. And they're like, well, we'll try again next week because there was just no room at all. Every single seat was filled and then we grabbed every extra chair that we had anywhere throughout the building and we were cramming chairs in every corner and stuffing them in the back and it was people standing in the back. It was completely and utterly packed house. So praise God, last Sunday we made the decision, if you can believe this or not, to move from one service to two services in St. John's for the second week. So St. John's, praise God. St. John's, can we just say that we are so proud of you? And just to see all of the teams work and just uh, the, the coffee was flowing like uh, milk and honey and uh, the, <laughs> the parking crew were out there doing their, <clears throat> doing their great work and there was such a warm welcome in the worship team. I mean, just the whole experience was just a fantastic thing for St. John's, for Clinton County. God is doing a good, good work. All right, we thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. Let's get started as we, uh, as we look into God's Word today. Uh, French. French, the language. I learned it. I learned it in school for a good number of years. I can count to 100 if you like. I can tell you my name and where I live. I know many words. I know the irregular verbs in French and how they're to be used for different tenses and pronouns and persons. Impressive stuff. Would you like to hear my French, church? Church, would you like to hear my French? Okay, this is my line. <laughs> Je l'ai étudié français à l'école pour cinq années, mais maintenant mon français est très faible. Why, thank you. <laughs> That's my line. It's cleverer than you think. It really is. And the reason why is because any opportunity I get to show off my little bit of French, I will show it off, like this morning. Uh, last week, I was in Home Depot, and there was a lady helping me. I would say she was in maybe her late 50s, maybe 60 years of age, and she said, I studied French in school. And I went, je l'ai étudié français à l'école. Pour cinq années, mais maintenant mon français est très faible. And she went, oh no, 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 no. And she was like, don't talk to me in French, because she's like, I don't remember any of my French. And I was like, really, that's okay. I know my French. I'll tell you why it's more clever than you even know, because here's what I'm saying. I literally am saying, I studied French in school for about five years, but now my French isn't very strong. And so it comes across as very grandiose, and yet it's so humble because I say, it's not really all that good, but to a person who doesn't speak any French, they're like, wow, that really sounds like some good French right there. And so they're genuinely impressed at how brilliant I am and how humble I am all at the same time. Some of you are even thinking right now, Pastor Alan speaks French. He's quite the Renaissance man. We didn't know. 
I lived in Ireland with my wife, who's from America, for several years, and we got these cheap tickets to go to France. I think we got tickets to go to Paris for 10 euro. Why would you not do that? So we hopped on a plane, and we got off uh, the plane, and my wife was thinking to herself, unfortunately, we'll be fine. My husband, he speaks fantastic French. You know where this is going, don't you? He will be, you know, chit-chatting with the hotel staff, ordering some wine and cheese as we venture out, getting the tickets for our, our day trip to Versailles, don't you know? I mean, all of these things, until we got to France. And then I tried to book a, <laughs> I tried to book a ticket from Paris to Versailles, and it was so bad. It was so pathetic. And then what I did was, because my French really is incredibly woeful, it's terrible, then what I do is, in order to overcome the fact that I simply don't know how to speak French, I just become louder, because then people will understand what I'm saying. And then my animation and my charades, and I'm like, th three syllables sounds like, and it's terrible. And my wife's looking at me going, wait a second, I thought you spoke French. You see, the truth about me is that I'm an imposter. <laughs> I'm a French-speaking imposter. Ever done it? Not French per se. Little bit of exaggeration. Ever maybe told a story in a certain light among certain company because you think that story will go down well here? Ever dropped a name or, well, actually, I read this book because you know that the person who you're speaking with will be somewhat impressed. Why do we do these things? Why do we tend to maybe present a little something that may be just a little bit more than the truth of who we are? Because the truth is, my French is terrible. And anyone can learn a line. And it sounds fairly impressive. I don't know that there's a single answer to that. It's probably many things. Perhaps we look in the mirror and we don't like what we see, and so we say, well, I'll present myself a little better than I, I know myself to be. Perhaps we don't want to be rejected by people, and so we put our best foot forward. Perhaps we're fearful of what others might think about us, so we make them think the best. Maybe we are preoccupied with other people's approval. Maybe we don't want to get left behind. Maybe we're desperately in need for other people to like us, and so we will sing a little song and do a little dance, whatever it is to cause people to go, well, he's a pretty good guy. Maybe we feel a little inadequate and maybe we lack confidence from time to time. And so what do we do? Well, we conceal and we hide and we, we are imposters and we wear masks and we read other people. Some of us have become extraordinarily skillful at mimicking personalities and jokes and reading people's moods so that we can sort of sift our way through life and navigate conversations. And the truth of the matter is, it's exhausting stuff. It's an exhausting way to go through your life. We deceive the world that we're doing great. Everything is fabulous. We can be so skillful, we can become so skillful that actually at the end of the day, and believe it or not, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're fluent in a language that we really can't speak a word of. We move that into a realm of faith, a, a realm perhaps of, of religion. And you would think to yourself, surely not in that area. Actually, it seems to be more prevalent there than anywhere else. We inflate our own moral standing. 
We build up our own character. and We want other people to notice that and see that. And as soon as we start doing that, inflating our own moral character or thinking that we are more than we are, spiritually speaking, the second we get there is the second we look down our noses at other people and we think ourselves somehow superior to them because of some little rule that you might be aware of and you're like, well, I obeyed that rule and I'm really good at being obedient to that rule and that seems like a very good spiritual rule and, and I do well with that. Or we've got some little Christian practice or discipline and we're like, I give myself a gold sticker, you know, when it comes to that. I get a star and an A plus because there are things that I do. You don't know it, but I know this about me. Some little piece of doctrine or theology that we feel like we could probably talk circles to other people around that because we know our stuff and maybe we've got a little bit of Hebrew or a little bit of Greek around there. And all of a sudden, We think we're an inch or two taller than anyone else. So today, I want to introduce you to a gospel truth. And that's what this series is, Welcome Home. Last week, we looked at a gospel truth that gives an invitation to everybody that simply says, when it comes to Jesus Christ, everybody is welcome. And praise God for that. Today, I want to introduce you a gospel truth, but it has a little bit of a sting to it. But the sting is worth it because honestly, it will genuinely lead you into such freedom in your life. And such freedom for our community because it does this single thing. It exposes the imposter in all of us. There is a community where everyone is welcome, but this is also a community where nobody is perfect. Amen? In fact, church, all our campuses online, would you just say that out loud? One, two, three. Nobody's perfect. Actually, why don't we personalize that out loud? We're going to say, I'm not perfect. Ready? One, two, three. I'm not perfect. Wives, you may dig your husbands in the ribs right now and say, see, I told you so. Well, Jesus actually had something to say about this exact thing. He's about to tell a story, but I'm going to show you in a verse who he's talking to and why he would tell the story. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 says this. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable, a story. This is a parable for those of us who put on a mask and think ourselves a little bit taller than anyone else. This is a scripture for those of us who pretend to know a little bit more French than we actually do. This is what Jesus had to say to the imposter inside every one of us. Here's the story, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, and the other is, we looked at this last week, it's a tax collector again. So immediately, if you're listening to Jesus, and you were there, first century Israel, and there's this rabbi called Jesus, you immediately know in this, sto- in this story, well, I know who the goody is in the story, and I know who the baddie is in the story. The goody is obviously the Pharisee. He loves God, he's religious, and the tax collector, again, we looked at this last week, everybody hates tax collectors, nobody even likes paying taxes anyway. So we know where things are at. The odd thing in this story is that the tax collector is going to pray. Now that's very, very different. Why would a tax collector be praying? They wouldn't do a thing like that. But this is Jesus' story. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and he's standing right there, or even like that tax collector. 
He must be fairly close to him. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, did you notice in that verse that it says that the Pharisee stood off alone by himself? The reason why he is standing off by himself, and it's hard to even wrap your head around this because it's so pompous, is because he literally doesn't want to get contaminated. That's pompous, isn't it? You may think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not joking. He actually thought keeping a distance from the tax collector would keep himself ceremonially clean so that he could worship God. He thought that keeping that distance was an expression of devotion to God. He actually believed that if he touched a Gentile or a Samaritan or a tax collector or a woman or a leper or a sick person, that he would therefore be contaminated, unclean, and couldn't worship God. But it's not just physical distance. Look at his language. It's like, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you so much that I'm not like that person over there. I mean, that's emotional, and for goodness sake, that's, that's a personal thing to say. It's an unbelievably rude, personal thing towards the tax collector. Thank you that I'm not like him, right there. And he's saying this out loud in front of other people. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. How does this Pharisee know that he's doing oh so well? Well, he takes out his resume. Let me prove to you how good I am. Verse 11, he says, I, I actually fast, and I do that twice a week. So fasting is where you'd, you'd give up your meals and you would seek God. Like I'm going to forego something that I want to do as a discipline and as a sacrifice, and I'm just going to seek God. I do, and I do that twice a week, don't you know? In the Old Testament, there was a day called the Day of Atonement. And the Old Testament said on the Day of Atonement, the nation of Israel were to fast. So that's when we were supposed to fast, the Day of Atonement. This guy's fasting twice a week. So he's fasting 104 times a year. And the Old Testament says, I need you to do it once a year. And he's walking away from that going, I'm getting 103 extra credit bonus points. Look at me. am not I doing well? He goes on a little bit further. Not only do I fast twice a week, but I give one-tenth of everything that I get. Of all that I get is his language. Now, this is about a concept in the Old Testament that's so known as tithe, where people would say, hey, I get $100, I'm going to give $10 to God. I'm going to give 10%. But believe it or not, it became a little bit of a loaded issue, and people began to argue and, and fight about, well, what exactly does this mean, and how much exactly do I have to give, and do I give from my pocket of what I earn, and then what if I buy food, and the farmers already tithe on the food. I'm not joking. They would get into such loopholes around this stuff. They're like, should I, if I buy some food, do I have to give 10% of the food that I buy? And basically what this guy is saying is he's like, I give the max of all that I get, everything that I possibly get my fingers on, I'm going to give the maximum that God requires of me. I'm going to give the full 10%. What is happening? Well, he's doing what we all do. Looking for loopholes and saying, I get through all of this. 
And sometimes it's not even religion. Sometimes it can be such controversial things like uh, parenting or politics or, or education or, or possessions. Or people begin to say, well, you know, I, I'm better than you because, well, I've had a harder life than you. Or people will look at each other and say, well, I'm, I'm superior to you. I'm looking down on you because, well, look at the school that I went to or, or the things that I've done. Translate it any way you want, whatever it's about, whether it's politics or my family or the car that I drive or the clothes that I wear or the money I have, all of those things. What it's basically boiling down to is, look, I'm not like you. I'm better than you. And that's the Pharisee. What about the other guy in the story? He's the loser. He's the corrupt guy. He's the, the no good, disloyal tax collector. He's the misfit. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Did you notice, much like the Pharisee, the tax collector is standing off at a distance as well. But it's not because he's looking down on anyone. And it's not because he's concerned that he's going to get contaminated by somebody else. It's because he realizes he has no business being there. He's at a synagogue. He's at the temple. And he looks at his life and he just thinks, I've actually messed up my life. And if God doesn't show me mercy and care and kindness, like, I'm in trouble if I don't get that from God. And he feels that so heavily on him, it says that he won't even, like, look up to the heavens. I won't do it. He won't make eye contact with anybody, never mind God. Verse 13 says, he says, he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. And this is a very, very unique thing. It is a sign of immense remorse. It is an expression sometimes of anger, sometimes of embarrassment or humiliation, or sometimes it is, it's just sadness, just pure sadness for a person to beat their breast. And it's actually not very common. It's not a kind of thing that a person would do on a daily basis at all. In fact, for the most part, men kind of didn't do it. And only women would do this when something awful had happened and they were filled with humility or they were filled with sadness or filled with anger. They would beat their chests. When I was 13, I had to learn Latin in school uh, for, for about a year or two. And then I also grew up, go, grew up going to Mass and for years, I went to Mass in Latin. And I, I don't remember where I learned this, whether it was in school or whether it was in, in Mass in catechism. I don't remember. But I always remember being taught that I had to beat my chest. And maybe some of you will remember this. This is fairly old school stuff. But I had to say these words, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. And what that means is you're saying, man, it's on me. This is, this is my fault. I'm culpable. And you're, you're, you're thumping yourself. I'm totally and thoroughly and maximally at fault and to blame in all of this mess of my life. And you were to do that in a somber, somber way. 
This is so rare. The only time that I could find it in the New Testament was after Jesus had died. We have this small group of people and they actually watched Jesus die. They actually witnessed the Messiah die on a cross. They saw his lungs falling and the mockery and the spitting in his face and the gambling over his clothes. And they saw these pins of steel going into his feet and his hands. And they looked at that and then it says he drew his, his last breath and it said, and they walked away and they were watching this and they were so filled with with utter despair and sadness, he said that they, as they walked away, they beat their chests. It's the only time I could find it. It's a rare moment. Look at his prayer. You get the feeling that he's just about able to whisper it out. Verse 13, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's beating his chest. And if you were there with Jesus and you were listening to that and your filter of sort of a first century cultural historic understanding, you would have been looking at that tax collector and you know what you would have been thinking? You would have been thinking, yeah, you better. You should be beating your chest. You no good, filthy, disloyal tax collector. We hate you. You, I can't even believe you're praying. I can't even believe you're in that synagogue. I I don't even want to hear a word. That's, That's the attitude of anyone listening. And here comes this twist at the end of the story that Jesus, I'm not joking, in nine times out of ten he told a story. He put in this thing at the end that caused everyone to go, wait a second, that's not where we thought this story was going. And he does it right here. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you this man, referring to the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, the goody two-shoes, he went home justified before God. And then Jesus lays down the sum total of this story. These are the people, this is a heavy statement. These are the people that God will work with. And here's the weighty part. And these are the people that God will not work with. He says in verse verse 14, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I'm telling you right now, anyone listening to that story, their jaw hit the floor. Really? The tax collector? That's not the way this story is supposed to go. Wait, 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 wait a second, Jesus. I know who the good people are. And I'm one of them. And this story doesn't fit into my paradigm. I know who the bad people are. I don't know if I like this story, Jesus. Because I've created ways to justify me. I've created ways to exonerate myself and blame other people. I go through my life, and I know exactly how to do that. I'm driving my car, and somebody pulls out in front of me. I'll get furious behind the steering wheel. Well, you know what they are. They're just a lousy, bad driver, and they can get off the road. But if I make a mistake, well, you know, it was just a little whoopsie. I mean, I didn't mean to do that. What is that? You're in mire and some kid is freaking out and they're on the floor wailing and kicking and screaming and you look down your nose and you're like, ah, look at that kid and I know what kind of parents they are and they need to take a few, you know, a few tips from me and I know how to raise children. But if it's your kid freaking out, well, you know, I mean, they're just a little tired and uh, they need a snack and, uh, uh, you know, it's okay. They're just having a bad day. Well, what is it that we do there? What if we do our own tax audit right now? Why don't we audit the righteousness of these two men? Answer this question. Who prayed more? 
That would be the Pharisee, right? Who went to temple and synagogue more? That would be the Pharisee. Who gave more money? He actually said it. The Pharisee. Who was a more devout spiritual person and a better reputation? That would be the Pharisee. Who know more Bible and more doctrine and more Old Testament law? That would be the Pharisee. Who fasted more? We all know about that too. That would be the Pharisee. One more category, by the way. Just one more. Who was more aware of their desperate need of God? That would be the tax collector. And Jesus is underscoring an essential truth. Church, don't miss it. In this story, actually, nobody's perfect. Nobody. Not me, not you. But the tax collector was not trying to be an imposter. He's not hiding. He's not concealing. He's not pretending. He is humbly being honest before God about the truth of himself. I want you to listen to this. Nobody, nobody, nobody is perfect. Would you just allow that truth to wash over you right now? You and the people that you and I judge. Not a one of us. Would you be willing, even in the presence of God today, to just come to an understanding, to come to terms with that? God, I am not a perfect man. I am not a perfect woman. And I'm unwilling to pretend to try to be something that I'm not. I will not be an imposter. The truth about me is that I am not perfect. It's not just personal, but I would love for that truth to wash over us corporately as a church. We are not perfect, amen? We're not. Now, I'm deliberately saying that as I open up the Word of God from this pulpit. This is not, community church is not a place for pretense. I don't want any part in it. I don't, want to, I don't want to personally do that. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that in the family of God. This is not a place for pretense. We must not, we cannot be that way with each other. We have a ministry in our church called Celebrate Recovery, which is a ministry for anybody with hurts or habits or hang-ups. It is a 12-step program. And so often when they meet together, what they will do is, and you probably can imagine this, what they'll do is they'll introduce themselves and say, well, hi, my name is Alan, and then here's the truth about me, and it's probably going to be the one thing that I don't really want to tell anybody, but I'm going to say it on purpose. Hi, my name is Alan, and I am addicted to food and to approval and to pornography and to sex and to drink and to money and to fill in the blank. Hi, my name is Sue and I'm addicted to medication. Hi, my name is Mike and I escape my life on video games. My name is James and I'm lonely and I'm, I'm greedy and I'm filled with envy and I, I tend to run towards gossip again and again. And the community turns around. And this is the beautiful part about this truth where we go, nobody is perfect. The community of God turns around and they says, oh, hi, hi, Mike. Hi, Sue. Hi, Alan. Hi there, John. That ugly thing that you don't want to say about you, mine is a slightly different shade. No prettier. And that's true about me too. You're welcome in this place. And I'm telling you, there is freedom in that. 
when we realize this. When we can actually stop pretending to be something that we're not. I'll tell you why it's so crucially important. This hit me about maybe two months ago, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's a true story. It's a, a, a lady that I know, I've known her for years, and she actually doesn't go to this church. She doesn't even live in this state. In a conversation, she could barely get these words out. And if you can just allow your imagination, like I'm not joking, when I tell you a person was speaking and they were stuttering and they were crying and they were trying to catch their breath, it was an extremely emotional conversation. And, and this is what she said. She said, well, our, our marriage is done. And she's just crying. He has filed for divorce. And he told me that he regretted marrying me. And look at the pain of this. Look at the wounds. He said... This is so horrible. I hate even saying it. He, he said he was never attracted to me and that I am fat and I'm ugly and that I'm unable to contribute anything. And she said, we have four children and I just don't know what's going to happen. And I'm going to a counselor and I'm so hurt and I'm so wounded. And I was so at pain just listening to her. And then she said something else that didn't cause me to be sad. It caused me to be angry. And this is what she said. She said, well, you know, our whole family, we've been going to church for years. And we love the church. And we go there. And we help. And we serve. And we, we give. And we, you know, we do all these things. But, you know, we never really said anything to anybody. Because, you know, it's church. And we're supposed to have that kind of stuff put together, aren't we? And I went, hang on a second. You hid that from the family of God. Why did she do that? Because she was living in a family that said, you better have your act together. And if you don't, you ought to stand over there by a distance, in a distance. And so she never said a word. She was keeping secrets with the devil. And there was no freedom in all of that. And pretense and the imposter rose up with a big fat smile on a Sunday morning. And you walk in the door and you say, how are you? And you say, I'm great. Church, we're not supposed to be all put together. We're not. None of us are. In this church, we refuse to be imposters. With God or with each other. In community church, nobody's perfect. Amen? This is a gospel truth that every one of us have simply fallen short of the glory of God. I want to leave you with this story, a classic story, and Orpah comments on this. The stories, maybe you've heard it before, called the Velveteen Rabbit. It's a story of a little toy rabbit that's made of velveteen. It's not impressive, it's not expensive, it's not majestic. But this little toy, this story, if you've ever seen the movie's Toy Story that came out years ago, Velveteen Rabbit is the, is the same script years and years and years before those movies came out. About these, these toys that wanted to become alive and loved their children. And this Velveteen Rabbit, well, he just loved this little boy that he belonged to. And he hears in the nursery one day that it's possible for him to become a real toy. This is what the story says. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string beads of necklaces. 
The skin horse was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and to swagger and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away. And he knew that they were only toys and they would never turn into anything else. What is real? asked the rabbit one day. Does it mean having things inside of you that buzz or a handle that sticks out? Oh no, real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's something that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really, really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Well, sometimes it does, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or does it happen bit by bit? Oh, it doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become, it takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop, drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But you see, these things, they just don't matter at all because once you're real, you cannot be ugly except to people who simply don't understand. In the story of the Velveteen Rabbit, if you've ever read it, it actually gets very dark towards the ending of the story because the little boy who's the owner of the Velveteen Rabbit, it looks like he's going to die. It's an old story. This boy has scarlet fever. But the little rabbit just keeps loving him. The little rabbit just stays by his side and just keeps whispering into his ear, and this little rabbit just loves this boy back all the way to health and recovery. And the doctor comes to the nursery. And the doctor just doesn't understand this. How is this boy so well? He, seems, he sees this velveteen rabbit. And he says something like, well, look at this messy, dirty little toy. It's just a mess of germs. It must be thrown away. It must be burned. And the rabbit is so sad. And he says, of what use was it to be loved and to lose one's beauty and to become real, for it all to end like this. Then a higher kind of power comes over this little rabbit, and he said something like, no, this is not the end. This is just the beginning. You're going to be made real. The velveteen rabbit says, but wasn't I real before? He's told, you were real to that boy because he loved you. Now you'll be real to everybody. I believe Jesus can be found in every story because there was once this man, a rabbi, who came and he spoke to people who thought that they were perfect. But he was a great teacher. And he came to earth and he taught like no one had ever taught before. And he lived like no one had ever lived. He just loved people. And nobody had ever seen a rabbi who just loved the kinds of people that he loved. Prostitutes for crying out loud. He would just love Roman centurions that everybody else hated. He would just love Gentiles. He would love Samaritans. He would love lepers and he would touch them. And he would even love tax collectors. And this made the good people, the superior people, the righteous people, the religious people, the devout people, it made them really angry. And they wanted to hurt him, but he didn't mind being hurt because he didn't break easily. And they decided, well, we're just going to kill him. 
And so they hung him on a cross until he was good and dead. And then they put his body in a tomb. And then they rolled a big stone up in front of it. And his disciples, they were just devastated. And they were so sad. They were just broken. And they said to themselves, oh, what's the use of all of this? What's the use of being loved and to lose one's beauty and become real if it's supposed to end like this? You see, his father came on the third day. No. No. This will not be the ending. It's only the beginning. And he rolled a stone away. And he raised his son up from the dead. And Jesus came out of the tomb. And he was real. And he was more alive and more real than any human being has ever been. For he was the velveteen rabbit, and death could not claim him. In this church, and in our lives, the spirit of superiority and the spirit of judgmentalism will never get a foothold in this place. Amen? And anyone here whose marriage is broken, or who has an eating disorder, or who cannot stop gossiping, or is embarrassed by the state of their friendlessness, who has credit card debt up to their ears, or who feels ugly or fat or rejected or unloved, we would say to you this day, everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And next week, what a joy to share with you that everybody is loved. We're going to pray for a minute. I'm going to invite, if you would, elders, staff, come on up to the frontier prayer team. And I'm going to dismiss you quietly <clears throat> uh, so that you would just be mindful maybe of some people coming up to receive some prayer. If there's anybody here and you'd like to take the imposter mask off, if there's anybody here who'd like prayer for any reason, we would love to listen to you and care for you and to pray for you. God bless.